When I'm not podcasting or keeping up on political or social issues, I live a fairly normal life. I work, I hang out with friends, I enjoy hobbies such as improv, playing The Sims, and making myself go to the gym, and I spend time with my husband Chuckles, as well as our dog and our cat. Chuckles and I go to the movies, we attend concerts and pro wrestling shows, we travel, probably less so now since COVID, but you get the idea. We're a bit nerdy, but generally speaking, we're regular folks. One of my siblings is part of the LGBTQ community and has a same-sex partner. Like us, they live a normal life, working, enjoying friends and hobbies, taking care of a home and a lovely, adorable pet, living life. Regular folks. Our lives would likely look quite a bit different if landmark U.S. Supreme Court cases such as Obergefell versus Hodges or Loving versus Virginia had a different outcome. Because of Loving versus Virginia, Chuckles and I, as an interracial couple, can be confident that regardless of where we choose to live in this country, our marriage will be recognized and the rights and privileges that come with our marital status will be conferred to us and respected. My sibling is currently not married and may or may not decide that in the future. But due to Obergefell versus Hodges, the choice exists. And if they do decide that for their relationship in the future, their marriage will be recognized no matter where they decide to live as a couple. The reason the leaked draft opinion in Dobbs versus Jackson, written by Justice Samuel Alito, is big news right now is because of how it impacts the abortion issue. If used for the final majority opinion on this case, this will strike down Roe v. Wade, which grants women and girls the right to terminate their pregnancies, and instead leave that decision up to the states, roughly half of which are poised to outlaw abortion immediately upon the death of Roe. The impact on Roe is vitally important, and it deserves to be discussed. But we need to understand that for Christian nationalists, those who are fighting for a country ruled by conservative, primarily white evangelicals, ending legalized abortion is not the end. This is only the beginning. This draft opinion, if implemented, sets the stage to impact more, much more than female bodily integrity and abortion access rights. If society and our elected officials, including Democrats and liberals, don't wake up now and treat this issue and the government takeover by right-wing Christian extremists with the urgency it deserves, Gilead isn't even the half of what we will see in the near future. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potster Podcast. everyone, and welcome to Potstirer Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. For decades, many political observers, myself included, doubted the political will of conservative officials to strike down Roe v. Wade. 
It was a campaign promise of many Republican politicians over the years. We're going to end abortion. But then they would get elected, then focus on other tasks, such as giving tax breaks to corporations and undoing regulations that protect the public, while at the same time defunding public assistance in the name of forcing personal responsibility on the so-called undeserving poor, and cutting back on public education funding while claiming that public education is bad. Many of us thought that the GOP ending Roe was an empty promise, but with the help of a more polarized public and the conservative and influential Federalist Society, which has had an outsized influence on the courts in recent years. Sadly, many of us were wrong. It looks like we're at a time in our country when we're moving from outlandish hypotheticals to cold, hard reality. And I think that what many of us didn't see until recently is that ending abortion is not the goal. The real goal is minority rule. The draft opinion of Justice Samuel Alito in the Dobbs versus Jackson case, which is a version of the opinion of the court, the actual decision in the case, was leaked at the beginning of May, and Politico broke the story in an exclusive on May 2nd. The draft opinion in raw form will be linked in the show notes. Within the opinion, Alito is abundantly clear in his intent to strike down both Roe and the 1992 ruling in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, stating, quote, We hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. End quote. He states that, quote, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start, its reasoning was exceptionally weak, and the decision has had damaging consequences. End quote. The draft opinion throws out several decades worth of legal precedent based on the argument that, quote, a right to abortion is not deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions, end quote. In the opinion, Alito does not hide his ideological biases, calling doctors who perform pregnancy termination abortionists and claiming the distinction made in Roe regarding viability, whether or not a fetus can survive outside a pregnant person's body, quote, makes no sense, end quote. He even leans into the anti-abortion Save the Black Babies narrative in a footnote, stating that some pro-choice supporters, quote, have been motivated by a desire to suppress the size of the African-American population, end quote. I discuss that aspect of the opinion more in depth in my latest blog piece, which I encourage you to read. It's available on potstarpodcast.com and on Medium. The Alito draft opinion is an open love letter to the anti-abortion pro-forced birth movement with no pretense of impartial jurisprudence. Four of the other conservative justices, Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, are siding with Alito, although they may or may not sign on to the opinion of the court. If they vote with Alito, but based on different legal reasoning, they may decide to draft concurring opinions. The three liberal justices, Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan, are reportedly working on one or more dissenting opinions. In the wake of the released draft opinion, Chief Justice John Roberts, whose vote on the case remains unknown, was asking the important questions. Instead of focusing on a decision that will impact the rights of women and girls all over the United States and our bodily autonomy for years to come, 
Chief Justice Roberts focused on how the draft opinion was leaked in the first place. He vowed to launch an investigation into who leaked the draft opinion, though so far, no one has come forward nor otherwise revealed to be the leaker. I wonder why. Meanwhile, congressional Democrats attempted to pass a law making abortion legal nationally, which would override state law should Roe be struck down. But at this time, that effort has died in the Senate, as expected given the close partisan divide there. At the core of Alito's justification for overturning Roe and Casey in the Dobbs decision is the reasoning that unenumerated rights, rights that are not explicitly mentioned in the U.S. Constitution, must be strongly rooted in U.S. history and tradition in order to remain protected. It's tenuous reasoning at best, the idea that rights that are not explicitly spelled out in the U.S. Constitution are not protected if those rights weren't extended to Americans in the distant past. Truly think about this for a moment. U.S. history and tradition is deeply rooted in racism, xenophobia, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, and the like. And historically and traditionally, rights and liberties were not extended to a number of marginalized groups in any way, shape, or form. Given that past, a past that many conservatives are fighting to keep hidden from the next generation, that legal reasoning from Alito is quite alarming. Besides Roe, landmark civil rights cases such as Loving v. Virginia, a 1967 case that made interracial marriage legal nationally, and Obergefell v. Hodges, the 2015 case that legalized same-sex marriage throughout the United States, rely on similar reasoning based on the 14th Amendment. Alito mentions these cases, but claims the opinion in Dobbs will not apply to these cases. But realistically, once the genie is out of the bottle, there's nothing preventing such a rationale from the court to be applied in later cases that are designed to overturn precedents set by Loving, Obergefell, and the like. To truly grasp the direction the American right is headed in post-Roe, we need to understand why overturning Roe became a major political wedge issue to begin with. It didn't start with Roe versus Wade. It didn't even start with abortion. It started with two events that occurred in the 1950s, Brown versus Board of Education and the rise of the Warren Court. So let's set the scene. This was during the time of Jim Crow, a period of legal and customary racial segregation, separation of the races in the United States, where white Americans were kept apart primarily from black Americans, but in some regions also affected Latino Americans, Native Americans, Asian Americans, and other groups. The manner of segregation was typically based on housing and migration patterns. To understand how this worked, let's go back in time just a little bit further. The early 20th century, from the turn of the 20th century to the 1920s, has been called by historians the nadir of American race relations because it was considered the most dangerous period for people of color, especially black Americans, than any other time in U.S. history. At the end of Reconstruction in 1877, former slaves in the South lost many of the legal protections they had during Reconstruction 
because Union soldiers were no longer there to assist in protecting those gains. Black Americans in the South were openly discriminated against and terrorized through lynchings and other forms of anti-Black violence and racial segregation called Jim Crow took many forms throughout the country. Jim Crow was supported at the highest levels of federal government. Plessy versus Ferguson, a case decided by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1896, stated that despite the 14th Amendment, which was ratified after the Civil War to guarantee equal protection under the law, among other rights, racial segregation was not a violation of this amendment. The court called the difference made between white and black, quote, merely a legal distinction, end quote, and stated that as long as public accommodations were considered equal, such accommodations were constitutional. This was known as the separate but equal doctrine. This will be important for later, so keep that in mind. By the time we get into the 20th century, black Americans are being stripped of many rights, and then on top of that, we're subject to campaigns of intimidation and violence. The play, The Klansman, published in 1905, and the 1915 movie based on it, The Birth of a Nation, popularized Lost Cause mythology, a revisionist retelling of Civil War history that paints the Confederate South as noble, genteel white heroes whose state's rights were suppressed and attacked by aggressors in the North. And without the ironclad control from ruling whites in the form of racial segregation laws and extrajudicial control, black people would revert to savages, raping, robbing, and killing white Americans. The Birth of a Nation was immensely popular nationwide with white audiences and was even screened at the White House, viewed by President Woodrow Wilson. The movie led to the revival of the Ku Klux Klan, the most powerful iteration of the Klan that has ever existed in history. Also, during this time, the Daughters of the Confederacy and other Lost Cause revisionists began funding statues commemorating Confederate leaders and soldiers, erecting them all over the country, not just in the South. Since at this point, it was several decades after the Civil War, the building of these statues in the 19-teens and 1920s was less about direct memory and more about rehabilitating the South's reputation and at the same time intimidating Black Americans with the threat of a South that shall rise again. In addition, race riots, white mobs waging violence against Black communities and other communities for perceived slights, were on the rise all over the country, as well as lynchings and other incidents of white supremacist terror. In 1919 alone, there were over 60 recorded instances of white-on-black race riots, primarily in the summer months, which is why this moment in time is known as the Red Summer. In many southern states, white residents and residents of color typically lived in close proximity to each other, a holdover from slavery and similar post-slavery practices like sharecropping. So in these states, segregation generally took the form of keeping black residents out of public facilities such as swimming pools, playgrounds, and parks, having separate water fountains and restrooms and buildings, having separate seating arrangements in theaters and courthouses, separate rooms and hospitals. Many white businesses either didn't allow black patrons or served them through separate entrances. Generally speaking, in northern states, 
slavery ended many decades prior to the Civil War. And prior to the Great Migration, black populations in most of these states were fairly small. Then, from the early to mid-1900s, millions of black Americans left the South in what was called the Great Migration. Due to the rise of the second Ku Klux Klan and similar white supremacist groups, intimidation, lynching, and other attacks increased in the South. In addition, there were few jobs available to black people that would allow them any type of upward mobility, and systems such as sharecropping and convict leasing were particularly exploitative of black labor. Prior to the 1950s, school districts in several states, primarily though not exclusively in the South, were segregated, which meant that there were schools for white students and schools for students of color, usually black students, but in some regions, other races and ethnicities were separated in public education. This included K-12 and higher learning. And all of this was within the boundaries of the U.S. Supreme Court's separate but equal doctrine. Of course, in practice, schools were more often than not unequal, white students generally having access to higher quality facilities, newer books, and more resources than black students and other students of color. At the same time, civil rights groups such as the NAACP were using the courts to attempt to advance equal rights. Reason being that at least on a federal level, the courts are filled with judges who are appointed rather than elected. At least in theory, appointing justices shields them from the effects of public opinion, which at this time in US history was not particularly supportive of racial equality. Civil rights lawyers were seeking out and taking on test cases, which are court cases where parties to lawsuits are funded by interest groups in order to change laws through the judicial system. The separate but equal doctrine, the bedrock of Jim Crow, was a major target of civil rights lawyers. But to combat the doctrine of separate but equal, both aspects, the separate and the equal, need to be addressed. Meanwhile, the U.S. Supreme Court itself was changing and had been altered since the Plessy versus Ferguson decision to where on some level, the court would become more willing to consider racial discrimination cases in a way that was favorable to black Americans, at least compared to in the past. A pivotal development occurred in 1953. With the death of Chief Justice Fred M. Vinson, President Dwight Eisenhower nominated Earl Warren, a Republican who was the governor of California for the Chief Justice role. He was installed as a recess appointment and was later confirmed by the Senate. The Warren Court would be known as a particularly liberal court, setting precedent in several landmark cases that, on the whole, broadened civil rights and liberties significantly. One of the earlier cases for the Warren Court would be Brown versus Board of Education. Brown was unique because the public school system at the center of the lawsuit which was in Topeka, Kansas, had recently built a new black elementary school where students such as Linda Brown were being diverted to instead of the older white elementary school that was closer to her home. So to resolve the lawsuit, it wasn't a question of simply making the black school as good as the white one, or more broadly, making sure segregated facilities were equal. The courts would be forced to deal with the question of segregation itself. Is the practice of racial segregation 
in and of itself inherently unequal. So when the case made its way to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1954, the court ruled unanimously that separate is inherently unequal, violating the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. This meant that public schools were ordered to desegregate. But the fallout from the Brown ruling would set off a web of future events leading to this upcoming decision in Dobbs v. Jackson, which is set to undo not only Roe v. Wade, but 70 years worth of American civil rights and liberties. In 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court, unified through the leadership of Chief Justice Earl Warren, ruled in Brown v. Board of Education that racially segregated public schools were unconstitutional, a violation of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. But a companion ruling in 1955, known as Brown v. Board of Education II, ordered the integration of public schools to occur, quote, with all deliberate speed, end quote. This vague approach to racial integration was seized upon by segregated jurisdictions, and school integration was slow-walked, to put it mildly. Racial integration in public schools, at least on paper, was not fully in place until the 1970s. Over this nearly two-decade-long process of public school integration, as Black students began attending schools that had once been whites only, the public resisted. This resistance included white parents and students, as well as local and state governments. Famously, or infamously, then-Alabama Governor George Wallace stood in front of Foster Auditorium on the campus of University of Alabama in a confrontation with federal officials in order to block the enrollment of its first two Black students, Vivian Malone and James Hood. Some districts did away with public schools entirely for a while in order to stall integration, similarly to the way that many segregated cities and towns did away with pools and playgrounds in order to avoid integration. Back in episode 93 in my conversation with Dr. Aubrey Hendricks, he recounted this very thing occurring in Virginia, the state of his birth, and how it negatively affected his relatives. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that episode, please do so. It was quite an enlightening discussion, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. In some districts, public schools continue to exist, but white parents took their children out of these schools almost entirely. In schools where public schooling as a whole was suspended, or where white families were leaving public schools, a popular destination for white students, oftentimes aided with vouchers, were segregation academies. Segregation academies were whites-only private schools, which could racially discriminate despite Brown and later the Civil Rights Act of 1964 because of their private and, in most cases, religious status. An early proponent of segregation academies was Jerry Falwell Sr. Falwell was pastor of the Thomas Road Baptist Church in Lynchburg, Virginia, and during the 1950s and 1960s, was known as a hardcore segregationist who opposed interracial marriage and preached that integration subverted the will of God. He vocally opposed Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. during his lifetime, a position Falwell held through at least the 1980s, 
even speaking out against the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. In 1967, due to efforts to desegregate schools in Lynchburg, Falwell opened the Lynchburg Christian Academy, now known as Liberty Christian Academy, or LCA. Lynchburg Christian Academy, a K-12 school, was a segregation academy that was affiliated with his church. We'll come back to Falwell in a moment. The Warren Court, meanwhile, continued to deliver decisions that expanded civil liberties and rights in the United States, including Loving v. Virginia in 1967, which struck down existing state anti-miscegenation laws, in other words, laws against sexual relations and relationships between individuals of different races, and legalized interracial marriage everywhere in the United States. Notably, the Loving decision deviated from U.S. Supreme Court decisions handed down on the subject, which had upheld state anti-miscegenation laws or refused to recognize interracial marriages entered into in other states, on the grounds that such laws affected white people and people of color equally. The rationale was strikingly similar to that pushed by opponents of same-sex marriage in the early 2000s. People of different races still had the right to marry, but not to each other. Penalties were the same regardless of race and allowing interracial marriage was not equality, but special rights. Up until Loving, the highest court where the right to marry interracially had been protected was the California State Supreme Court, in the case Perez v. Sharp. In that 1948 case, lawyers for the state government, who were defending their state law banning interracial marriage, used passages from Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf to support their position in 1948. Apparently, the state attorneys didn't know how to read the room, since World War II just ended a few years earlier, and yeah, we had fought against Hitler. So of course, the court didn't take too kindly to this line of legal reasoning, and proceeded to strike down California's anti-miscegenation statute. Nearly 20 years later, in Loving v. Virginia, the lawyer seeking to overturn an interracial marriage ban in Virginia drew on the Perez case to make their own arguments that anti-miscegenation laws like the one existing in the state at the time violated the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, even though there was no specific right to interracial marriage written in the Constitution. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that banning interracial marriage was a violation of the Equal Protection and Due Process Clause's of the 14th Amendment. And with this decision, people could marry partners of a different race than themselves, no matter where they lived. The Loving decision had far-reaching effects in terms of marriage equality, allowing people to marry other consenting adults who they loved, regardless of the bigotry of others. Notably, Loving served as precedent for Obergefell versus Hodges, the U.S. Supreme Court decision in 2015 legalizing same-sex marriage nationally along the same lines. With that decision, gay and lesbian people could marry who they love and enjoy the benefits of marriage equally. Chief Justice Earl Warren retired in 1969, meaning the era of the Warren Court was over. And while the U.S. Supreme Court became more politically conservative after the retirement of Chief Justice Warren, that rightward shift began fairly slowly. While Warren's replacement as Chief Justice, Warren Burger, was more conservative than his predecessor, going into the 1970s, most of the justices that had been part of the Warren Court 
still remained and continued to be influential. The Burger Court issued conservative rulings when it came to issues such as busing as a remedy for de facto school segregation, and Burger himself was known to be intensely homophobic, evidenced in part by his vile screed in Bowers v. Hardwick, a 1986 decision that upheld bans on consensual homosexual relations. And no, I'm not going to read it. But overall, at least compared to the current court, the Burger Court was on balance more liberal, which will come up a little later. Now, let's go back to Jerry Falwell, the LCA, and segregation academies. Now, a lot of what I'm going to discuss in the next several minutes, especially as it relates to what occurred in and around the 1970s, can be credited to religious historian Randall Balmer and his recent book, Bad Faith. It's a quick read, yet packed with a lot of well-researched historical information about the religious rights' origins, so I definitely recommend it. In 1964, the Civil Rights Act, passed by Congress and signed into law by President Lyndon B. Johnson, ended segregation in public accommodations and banned employment discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. What the Civil Rights Act also did was add much-needed teeth to Brown v. Board of Education. Provisions within the Act allowed the U.S. Justice Department to sue school districts that refused to integrate, and the federal government could withhold funding from segregated schools. These changes accelerated the process of desegregating schools in the South. But even with that, there was resistance. Over the next several years, as segregated public school districts were being forced to integrate, segregation academies like LCA, often tied to white evangelical and fundamentalist religious institutions, were springing up all over the South. These segregation academies were being used as an end run around school integration, which, of course, was by design. Falwell and other segregationists weren't particularly shy about this. Of course, as private institutions, and for most as religious institutions. These schools were exempt from the Civil Rights Act of 1964. After all, the act only applied to public accommodations and employment, and with the extra cloak of so-called religious freedom, segregation academies were in the clear. Sort of. Segregation academies, by virtue of being educational institutions and often tied to churches and other religious organizations, were nonprofits and therefore entitled to tax exempt status as charitable institutions. Until Green v. Connolly. Green v. Connolly was a U.S. District Court case that involved the tax exempt status of three K 12 segregation academies in Holmes County, Mississippi, that had been established in the mid 1960s. The county desegregated their public schools in 1969. Keep in mind, this was 15 years after Brown. That year, the number of white students enrolled in the county's public schools declined from 771 to 28. And then the following year, the number of white students in Holmes County public schools fell to zero. Clearly, these segregation academies were in place to resegregate schools. And the concern with that is, with white students no longer being educated in the county, Funding for public education in the county would be greatly reduced, disadvantaging black students still left in the public schools. 
So black parents from the county sued the Internal Revenue Service, the IRS, on the grounds that schools practicing racial discrimination should not be considered charitable institutions for the purpose of tax-exempt status. The IRS, under the Nixon administration, had to scramble to articulate a policy on segregation academies and tax-exempt status. The administration ultimately determined that allowing segregation academies to be classified as charitable institutions would violate the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So by default, as racially discriminatory institutions, segregation academies could not be classified as such for tax-exempt purposes. This means that such schools cannot claim tax-exempt status, and donors to these schools may not write off their contributions on their taxes as charitable donations. And while later, segregated schools would argue that they should not have their tax-exempt status revoked because they don't actively take money from the federal government, there's an argument to be made that tax exemption in and of itself is a benefit. In his book, Bad Faith, Randall Balmer writes, quote, Tax exemption is a form of public subsidy. Churches and other nonprofit organizations are required to pay no taxes other than Social Security tax on wages, which means that tax-paying citizens make up the difference for everything from parks and police protection to national defense, end quote. Once the Green case made its way to the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia in 1970, the IRS had already instituted their policy stripping segregation academies of their tax-exempt status. In 1971, the U.S. Supreme Court, led by Chief Justice Warren Burger, heard the case as Quait versus Green, and the court affirmed, or in other words, upheld, the lower court Green versus Connolly decision. Jerry Falwell was incensed at the new IRS policy that came out of Green versus Connolly. At this point, the ruling wouldn't affect LCA. It had been a segregation academy the first two years of its existence, but abandoned their whites-only policy at this point. But for Falwell, it was the principle of the matter, for lack of a better way to put it. Questionnaires had been sent to private academies by the federal government asking about the school's policies on racial integration. And Falwell was angered by the hoops such schools had to go through in order to obtain or maintain their tax-exempt status. Falwell was also upset at the way the government handled the most well-known school to run afoul of this policy, Bob Jones University. Bob Jones University, or BJU, is a private evangelical Christian university in Greenville, South Carolina. If you recall a couple months ago, if you've listened to the podcast, I talked to Andrew Pledger, an artist and podcaster who had recently been expelled from BJU. That is also a great episode and worth listening to, so check that out as well. So up until 1971, BJU did not admit black students and told the government as such when asked. BJU's policy changed in 1971 when they allowed married black students, and then again in 1975 when they began admitting black students regardless of marital status. But even with these changes, they maintained a policy against interracial marriage, which meant they continued to run afoul of the IRS. And BJU held that policy for the next few decades until 2000. But do you know what issue Jerry Falwell was not upset about in the early 1970s? 
abortion. The anti-abortion position had long been taken by the Roman Catholic Church, having been largely anti-abortion since the first century, and its current position on abortion solidified in 1869. So while there has always been some diversity of thought among individual Catholic believers, the Church itself has long opposed abortion, and early anti-abortion activists were largely Catholic. But this wasn't the case for Protestants, including Evangelical Christians. Evangelical denominations taking on the abortion issue in the 1960s and 70s varied in their views on abortion, from ambivalence to straight-up affirming the right of women to obtain abortions. The anti-abortion position was primarily viewed as a Catholic position, and at the time, most Protestant leaders were not particularly comfortable with making common cause with Catholics, as long-standing anti-Catholic prejudice was still a feature of American society. In 1973, the Burger Court handed down a landmark Roe v. Wade decision. In Roe, the U.S. Supreme Court decided that pregnant women had the right to obtain an abortion per the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. There was a bit more nuance to this. The degree to which a woman could exercise a right to an abortion depended on the stage of pregnancy. Abortions could not be regulated during the first trimester, except that they would need to be performed by a licensed physician. During the second trimester, government could regulate abortion, but only to protect the health of the pregnant person. After viability, which encompasses the last few weeks of the second trimester and all of the third trimester, the government could regulate and even ban abortion as long as there was a carve-out that allowed abortion to save the life and health of the pregnant person. These stipulations would be tweaked and modified over time with Webster v. Reproductive Health Services in 1989, Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1992, and a number of other cases. But up until potentially this summer, Roe has held as precedent and settled law. Well, several years later, Jerry Falwell, as well as Pat Robertson and other famous evangelical leaders would retcon their reactions to Roe and claim that their reactions to the 1973 decision would lead them to political action, there isn't any contemporary evidence that Falwell or most of the other usual suspects decried Roe back in 1973. Falwell made his first statement on abortion two years after Roe and did not preach against abortion until 1978. As a matter of fact, in the evangelical space, few were in complete opposition to abortion around the time of Roe. In 1968, a conference was held involving the evangelical publication Christianity Today and the Christian Medical Society to mull over the ethics of abortion. But after convening for several days, issued a statement expressing disagreement on the issue and acknowledged the ambiguity surrounding this issue permitted a number of approaches. More specifically, they were unable to agree to the morality of performing the termination procedure but agreed that abortion may be justified on the grounds of, quote, individual health, family welfare, and social responsibility, end quote, and acknowledged instances when the life of the fetus, quote, may have to be abandoned to maintain full and secure family life, end quote. Also, 
Balmer points out that in 1971, the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest evangelical denomination in the United States, passed a resolution that stated, quote, we call upon Southern Baptists to work for legislation that will allow the possibility of abortion under such conditions as rape, incest, clear evidence of severe fetal deformity, and carefully ascertained evidence of the likelihood of damage to the emotional, mental, and physical health of the mother, end quote. This position was affirmed even after Roe in 1974 and in 1976. W.A. Criswell, former president of the SBC and pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, would applaud the Roe decision, stating, quote, I have always felt that it was only after a child was born and had a life separate from its mother that it became an individual person, end quote, and went on to also say, quote, and it has always therefore seemed to me that what is best for the mother and for the future should be allowed, end quote. While a few in the evangelical space, such as Christianity Today, criticized Roe at the time, the magazine published an editorial three years later entitled, Is Abortion a Catholic Issue?, which agreed with the right to life as a general principle, but stopped short of a true anti-abortion position, stating, quote, There are, of course, other considerations, such as the rights of the parents and the much-debated question of when life begins, end quote. Walter Martin, the founder of the Christian Research Institute, wrote a book published in 1977 called Abortion, Is It Always Murder?, where he argued against abortion as contraception, but said that it should be allowed in cases of rape, incest, and to protect the health of the pregnant woman. He had strong words for those who opposed all abortions, stating, quote, I think the people who are against abortion in any form have presumed to instruct the deity, end quote. What led to abortion becoming the wedge issue of our time was not Roe versus Wade, but an unholy alliance between evangelical leaders and Republican political operatives. And what got them together initially was not abortion, but the tax-exempt status of segregation academies. As we know at this point, in the 1970s, Jerry Falwell, alongside other Southern white evangelicals, were more concerned about the federal government choosing not to subsidize their quest to keep white students from learning alongside black students than the abortion issue. Political operative Paul Weyrich had been trying to find a way to bring conservatives together from all over the United States to create a unified and powerful voting bloc that would support conservative causes and eventually pass conservative legislation of all types. White evangelicals in the North had been shifting toward the Republican Party in the post-World War II period due to anti-Catholic bigotry, concerns over the Cold War, and the public friendships famous evangelist Billy Graham had with Republican presidents Dwight Eisenhower and Richard Nixon. But Southern white evangelicals, who were typically Democrats and had been since the Civil War, were a tougher nut to crack. Yet that loyalty to the Democratic Party would fall apart after the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Bipartisan bills, but signed into law by President Lyndon B. Johnson, a Democrat. The late 1960s through the 1970s was a period of de-alignment for the South, 
white Southerners, including evangelicals, were leaving the Democratic Party in droves, particularly on a national level, but not quite ready to commit to the Republican Party. But the school desegregation efforts of the federal government and the refusal of the government to extend tax-exempt status to whites-only segregation academies led to a working relationship between white evangelical leaders like Falwell and political operatives like Wyrick. But while allowing for government subsidized resegregation was always a goal, couched in this vague idea of religious freedom, the concern was that white evangelicals in the North would not be so willing to get behind Southern segregation academies as a political issue worth going out to vote for. So over the course of the 1970s, various issues were kicked around, including focusing on anti-gay legislation. But after the 1978 midterm elections, what was settled on was abortion. Why? Because, to make a long story short, abortion, specifically anti-abortion activism, had made a difference in low turnout elections in Iowa, Minnesota, and New Hampshire, seeing that the abortion issue was a winner in elections. Wyrick seized on that, and along with Falwell and others in this budding coalition, recruited conservative theologian Francis Schaeffer. Schaeffer incorporated graphic imagery and powerful rhetoric that would sell evangelicals on the idea that abortion was a practice supported by secular humanists, and abortion is murder. Creating a movement that was called the moral majority, abortion would become a front and center issue that would lead evangelicals to align with the GOP. In the 1980, this moral majority would help defeat a Baptist Sunday school teacher, electing a twice-married B-movie actor who had signed a pro-choice bill into law while governor of California. Now to be fair, President Jimmy Carter was a weak incumbent in 1980 for a lot of reasons unrelated to abortion or so-called moral issues, so he may have been defeated anyway. But supporting Ronald Reagan meant that the moral majority could use that win to sell their influence to the public. See, the moral majority really liked Ronald Reagan, not because of any religious or anti-abortion bona fides, because he had none, but because he had a consistent record of supporting actions that were segregationist and racially conservative. Sound familiar? And Reagan came with a hell of a track record. While governor of California, Reagan opposed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 in the Voting Rights Act of 1965, opposed fair housing legislation, signed gun control into law because the Black Panthers legally open carried, and ran for state office on a Nixonian slogan, Law and Order, a dog whistle signaling the use of police to oppress the Black population. When he ran for president in 1980, he stumped in Philadelphia, Mississippi, a town where civil rights workers James Cheney, Michael Schwerner, and Andrew Goodman were murdered by the Ku Klux Klan and local law enforcement, and while there, spoke on his support for states' rights, a phrase used to justify Southern slavery and later Jim Crow. And key to this alignment with the moral majority and guys like Jerry Falwell, Reagan spoke at Bob Jones University, criticizing the IRS to great applause. Abortion would get regular evangelicals to the polls, 
But Reagan's conservatism, especially on race, was what truly excited leaders of the moral majority, which would later morph into a less centrally organized, but still incredibly powerful religious right. And Reagan didn't disappoint. He opposed affirmative action as so-called reverse discrimination when the U.S. was maybe only a decade removed from Jim Crow's end. He opposed public assistance and demonized those who needed it as welfare queens. His iteration of the war on drugs sought to destroy urban black families and communities. He ignored the HIV AIDS crisis, which was killing thousands and at the time affected the gay community the most. He slashed mental health care, disproportionately affecting marginalized communities, and cut social programs and services. I could go on forever because as most of you know, I truly believe Ronald Reagan was probably the one president in modern times who was probably worse than Donald Trump. But the point is, Reagan was the darling of the religious right. And over time, the tireless work of both the religious right and the Republican Party together has reflected many of the same values as Ronald Reagan, while cloaking it in the veneer of so-called pro-life. And while white evangelicals and other conservatives celebrate the probable end of Roe v. Wade as judicial precedent and the end of protected legalized abortion access across the United States, the historical timeline presented in this episode should make it abundantly clear this is not the end game. This is only the beginning. And that was the idea all along. It has never truly been about abortion. It has always, always been about race. But Jay, why are we talking about race when the Dobbs draft opinion is about abortion? Shouldn't we focus on that? Here's the thing. These issues are interconnected. Yes, we should focus on upholding Roe and even making the laws regarding abortion more uniform and unambiguously in favor of female bodily autonomy. But if we don't also pay attention to the legal reasoning that has supported the rights we have and how attacking that legal reasoning in one case will negatively affect so many of our other rights and liberties, we miss the forest from the trees. Over time here on Potstirer Podcast, you've seen some of my own growth and increased clarity as it pertains to the abortion issue. Is it a life? Is it not a life? This might sound harsh, and I really don't mean it to be. But in my opinion, the debate over fetal humanity and personhood is the least interesting part of the abortion issue. And I say that because whether a fetus is a clump of cells or a person is irrelevant to the issue for either side of the debate. For those who are against abortion, the fetus is a person, a baby, but only for the purpose of making medically safe abortion a crime. They are not advocating for the fathers of these babies to pay for half of the mother's prenatal visits in a country where healthcare can be quite expensive. They're not forcing fathers to pay for other expenses related to pregnancy. I mean, after all, it's a baby, right? Those stimulus checks for COVID first instituted by Donald Trump with his name signed on them. Those so-called pro-life advocates weren't pushing for fetuses to be counted as part of the family for the sake of those checks, were they? No. Hell, why don't we go ahead and count these unborn babies as dependents on our taxes? No, no, why not? Aren't they babies? 
They're unborn. It's not the same. If it's not the same, then why make the argument that the law should force women and girls to remain pregnant because they're babies, morally, ethically the same as born babies, with the only difference being location? Make it make sense. For those of us who are pro-choice, even if the fetus is a person, it doesn't mean the fetus's life trumps that of a born pregnant person. A pregnancy should be a choice, and that choice should remain during the pregnancy, not only before. Pregnancy is a risky, potentially life-threatening proposition, especially in a country without universal health care and with high maternal mortality rates. And it makes absolutely no sense to use a life-threatening physical process as an imposed consequence, or really punishment, for the crime of a woman having sex with a man. To have the government impose that punishment is an extremist position, and we should call it out as such. We need to focus less on the debates over personhood, because those really don't matter from a rights standpoint, and more on bodily autonomy. The fact is that throughout much of the pregnancy, the fetus cannot live outside the womb, meaning that it's dependent on the pregnant person for its continued existence, and that dependence should only be with their consent. We don't force people to give up their organs to save the lives of born living people, even when they make decisions others morally disapprove of. We can't even take organs from the deceased without them consenting while alive, or their families consenting when they are no longer here to speak for themselves. Isn't it wild that dead people have more of a right to bodily autonomy than living women and girls? But what I wanted to focus on most in this episode is how dangerous the Alito draft opinion truly is. When he says, quote, a right to abortion is not deeply rooted in a nation's history and traditions, end quote, as a reason we cannot legally infer this right from the 14th Amendment. That's a shot not only at Roe, but on every U.S. Supreme Court decision handed down over the last 70 years that inferred constitutional rights that were historically denied to Americans. Interracial marriage and same-sex marriage are a couple of examples, but those are not the only ones. There are so many, even going all the way back to Brown versus Board of Education, that segregation, separation of the races, is inherently unequal. While Justice Alito specifically states that these other decisions will not be affected by the Dobbs decision, he cannot guarantee that, and at the same time make the argument that historical and traditional granting of said rights is the litmus test that will tell us if such rights can be inferred from the U.S. Constitution in the here and now. Especially in a country with a deeply rooted history and tradition of denying rights and liberties on the basis of race, ethnicity, national origin, religion, sex and gender, sexual orientation, gender identity. It absolutely opens the door to losing so many of our rights, and with it, a viable democracy, like with a whole host of actions by Republican leaders these days. The goal here is authoritarian rule by a white conservative minority that will remain in place even as this country continues to diversify. And I'm 100% sure, 1000% sure, Samuel Alito and the court's conservative majority know that's exactly what they're enabling should this draft opinion be finalized. It is all by design. We are living in interesting times. And with it, it's imperative that each and every one of us understands that time doesn't magically make everything better. We are not on some continuous wave of progress. 
the nadir of American race relations should be a clear example of the fact that progress in the United States has not been a constant and always required effort from all of us. We have to work for it. What comes to mind is a quote from Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., someone who, by the way, in his lifetime was in favor of family planning and received an award from Planned Parenthood. This is what he said in his book, Why Can't We Wait? Time itself is neutral. It can be used either destructively or constructively. More and more I feel that the people of ill will have used time much more effectively than have the people of goodwill. We will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and actions of the bad people, but of the appalling silence of the good people. Human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts of men willing to work to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. We must use time creatively in the knowledge that the time is always ripe to do right. Thank you so much for listening to Potstirer Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Prime, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app. Go to potstirerpodcast.com slash download, and you'll see the links to the podcast on a nearly endless list of podcast apps. If you subscribe for free, you'll be able to listen to new episodes once they come out. No waiting. Once it's posted, you'll have it. I also posted an article on Medium recently called Justice Samuel Alito is Wrong About Abortion and Black Genocide. Here's why. You'll want to read it there and follow me on Medium or check out the version posted to the Potstirer Podcast website. If you enjoyed the podcast, please go on your app of choice and leave five stars and a review. And I love to tweet quite a bit. So follow me on Twitter at PotstirerCast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free.